Welcome to podcast number 97. Today I'm going to be doing something a little different. I'm going to be flying solo on this particular podcast. We're going to be talking about something that was very important in the first century church as reflected in the book of Acts and as taught in the epistles. Therefore, if we're going to be like a New Testament church, we'll need to take these things seriously. Bottom line, we're going to be speaking about church discipline, and I'm going to be sharing some of the things that I've learned about church discipline over the years from the scripture and from practical experience. Hope you enjoy this podcast. Welcome to Strength for Today's Pastor, conversations with current senior pastors and leaders which will strengthen and help you in your pastoral ministry. And now, here's your host, Bill Holdridge of Poyman Ministries. So a little bit of background for those of you that are not familiar with me. Uh, I was the founding pastor of Calvary Chapel of the Monterey Peninsula, which we later renamed to Calvary Chapel Monterey Bay, which is now called Calvary Monterey. My first official Sunday was March 1st, 1979. I pastored for 27 years until I stepped aside in February of 2006, and then shortly thereafter started Poyman Ministries with two other of our team members, Pat Kenny and Gillette Doggett, and we formed the initial board of directors of Poyman Ministries. Now we are a group of 10 pastors serving together. And I've been blessed in my time with Poyman to pastor not only my initial church, Calvary in Monterey, but also in Scotts Valley, California, in Yuba City, California, in Rogers, Arkansas, and uh, in the central coast of California. So, you know, it's been a blessing. It's been wonderful to be part of different congregations over the years. And so there have been a lot of opportunities to think through the issues and to apply the issues having to do with church discipline. So that's what I wanted to share in this podcast today. So I'm going to give you nine bullet points, and I'm going to go through them relatively quickly. I'm going to be attaching all of my notes directly to this podcast episode so that you can read the show notes. But the bullet point number one is church discipline is closely related to Christian discipleship. So we talk about church discipline, it's not its completely separate own category, it's related to the idea of Christian discipleship. Discipline and discipleship are part of the same idea. Discipleship might also be called preventative church discipline, as some have called it, and I think that's a good way to describe it. And what is meant by preventative church discipline is that when congregants are discipled in Christ, And when they are exercising their spiritual gifts for the sake of others, when they are in the Word of God studying it and reading it, when they have a prayer life, when they are in consistent Christian fellowship, when they're involved in some aspect of the Great Commission, when they have a level of accountability in the way they live their Christian lives, well, that person, having become a disciple, a follower of Jesus, and doing it Jesus' way, has made himself or herself immune to the need for what we might call corrective church discipline. So church discipline really uh, is related to discipleship in that when someone is discipled, that's actually preventative church discipline. It's preventing someone 
from ever needing corrective church discipline. And I might note that it's easy to remain in fellowship and good standing in a church. All one has to do is not be an adulterer, don't be a fornicator, don't be a blasphemer, don't be an extortioner, don't be an indolent, lazy person, don't be a drunkard, don't be a divisive person, don't be covetous, etc. The things that are named specifically in the New Testament in related passages. Just stay out of the habitual practice of any of those things, and you'll be fine. You'll be in good standing in the church, taking your place, taking one's place, with all the other sinners that have been saved by grace that are in the church. But if a congregant does yield to the power of sin and refuses to allow restoration and repentance into his or her life, then that person becomes subject to what is called corrective church discipline. And by the way, and being involved in church discipline situations over the years, one thing that I I really have to caution myself in is don't be in a hurry in terms of going forward with corrective church discipline. Don't be in a hurry. Give opportunity and time for the grace of God and for the patience of the Lord to be manifest. Remember, the Lord is very long-suffering. He's very patient toward us. So the, the same level of patience that he has toward me, I want to be able to extend that to others and working with them before we have to follow through the process of corrective church discipline. So that's bullet point number one. Church discipline is closely related to Christian discipleship. Bullet point number two, church discipline is actually application of divine chastening. And we're familiar with the passage in Hebrews 12 that the chastening of the Lord is for our benefit. The Lord loves those whom he chastens. He scourges every son whom he receives. And that if we endure chastening, then the Lord is able to deal with us as sons and daughters because there is no father who does not chasten uh, his children. But if someone is without chastening, is removed from the process of divine chastening, then uh, that makes that person illegitimate and not true sons or daughters. So church discipline is actually the application of divine chastening. If corrective church discipline is needed, it comes from our loving Heavenly Father through the Lord Jesus Christ, through the pastors and leaders of that church, to the person in the fellowship who needs the correction, and therefore it's an extension of God's own heart toward that person. He loves those whom he chastens, and he chastens those whom he loves. That kind of helps us, I think, with the attitude of church discipline. Uh, If we have to do corrective church discipline, we have to see it as the extension of the heart of God the Father toward his children. Bullet point number three, and I'm going to be referring to Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 18. Matthew 18, 15 through 18, has to do with interpersonal conflicts. Now, I'm going to spend a little bit of time on this because this, I think, is important. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 18, is that passage that deals, of course, with if your brother sins against you, go to him, tell him his fault between him and you alone, and if he hears you, you've, you've gained your brother. If not, then tell it to him with one or two witnesses, and if not, then tell it to the church, and if that doesn't become received, then he becomes uh, like a tax collector and a sinner and is put out of the fellowship. 
But really, the key in Matthew 18, in my thinking, is that it has to do with interpersonal conflicts and not just sins in general. And what, what I mean is, it has to do with the occurrence of the phrase or the two words, against you. The New King James Version, I think the ESV, I think the Holman Christian Study Bible, uh, and a couple of other translations include the words against you. If your brother sins against you, go to him. Other translations that are based upon the Sinaiticus and Vaticanus texts, which are regarded as the oldest known Greek manuscripts, those translations do not include the words against you. And so the, the text reads this way, moreover, if your brother sins, go to him and tell him his fault between you and him alone. So that would be a reference to somebody, anybody in the fellowship. If I know that they've sinned, then I'm to go to them, and it's my responsibility to do so. But if you include the words against you, then that means it has to do with interpersonal conflict. Somebody has sinned specifically against me. And so one commentator in a blog uh, illustrates the problem this way, and I'm reading if the shorter reading is preferred, if your, if your brother sins, then we are admonished to rebuke brothers and sisters who are involved in sin in general, whether or not it's a direct offense against you. So if you know of someone in the church who has an anger problem, for example, or is having an affair or is cheating on his taxes, you're to follow the procedure of confrontation described in Matthew 18, 15 through 20. But if the longer reading is preferred, if your brother sins against you, then the confrontation is only necessary when someone in the church sins against you personally. Cheating on taxes or someone who has an adulterous affair would not be a sin against you personally, so this passage would not be applicable to that situation. It would not require you to go to that person yourself, but if he or she lies, cheats, or acts arrogantly toward you, then confrontation is necessary. And I think this particular commentator has outlined the problem pretty specifically, and then he goes in his article to try to solve the issue of whether or not the actual words against you belong in the text or do not belong in the text. So it really becomes a textual problem. Bruce Metzger, in his textual commentary on the Greek New Testament, is relatively unsure uh, more manuscripts include the words against you, that would be the majority text, and then less manuscripts, the older ones, Sinaiticus and Vaticanus particularly, uh, they don't include it. So uh, he's not really sure. And, and commentators and textual critics go back and forth on this, they're not really sure. So I'll give you my opinion on this for what it's worth and see what you think about this yourself. The context of the New Testament's teaching on individual believers and their gifting and their calling makes me believe that the words against you do belong in the passage. Because not everybody is gifted or called or wired to be able to go and confront another believer and approach another believer with regard to their particular sin. 
For some believers, that would be way, way beyond their gifting, their capacity, their emotional maturity, and especially in the case of a younger believer who hasn't developed enough spiritual maturity to be able to go into a situation like that, I would say by all means, that person shouldn't involve himself in things that are beyond where the Lord is calling him to be involved with. And so I, I think that the, the New Testament teaching on spiritual maturity and on the gifting and the calling of individual believers makes it more likely that the words against you should be included in the text. This is an interpersonal conflict issue. Another reason why I think that against you should be in the text, and it shouldn't be a passage referring to sin in general in the body, is that if I'm responsible to look for sin or find sin or notice sin and then confront it myself wherever it occurs in the body of Christ, and that's the responsibility of every believer, then that seems to me that it opens a, a Pandora's box. And when Pandora opened her box, vile things came out. And if we open up this box, vile things can come out like judgmentalism and legalism and sin-sniffing behavior in the church. It's fuel for those that tend towards a lack of grace or graciousness on their part. And it's just really something that creates more problems than it actually solves. So I, I would think that it's really not intended to be a passage that deals with sin in general in the body, but more sin against me interpersonally. And as a pastor, and I'm sure that pastors listening to this will agree with me on this point, uh, I've seen that in many situations, believers are reluctant to go to other people who have offended them personally, and so they need exhortation to deal with their own interpersonal conflicts. When someone comes to me and, and complains to me about an interpersonal conflict they have with someone else, my go-to response is, this is your responsibility to go to them and try to work this out on a personal level. And then if that doesn't work, then take it to the next level and the next level after that. But you, it's your responsibility to do that, not the responsibility to tell other people about it or even have the pastor insert himself or spiritual leaders insert themselves into the conflict. This is an interpersonal conflict. So we have enough of a problem just on that level in the church already. Imagine the problems that would be the result of making this a general command. I do believe that church discipline and the application of it, corrective church discipline, is the responsibility of anointed leadership in the church, mature believers who are called into those positions of leadership uh, being able to handle this. But like I said, this is a debated passage, so you'll have to decide yourself where you land on this. That's my take. These are the things that I have believed, uh, that I have learned, and uh, that's how I operate in my pastoral ministry. Bullet point number four. The number of people who are made aware of the discipline of a corrective discipline situation is determined by the number of people who know the one who is being disciplined. Now, what do I mean by that? The number of people who are made aware of the discipline is determined by the number of people who know the one who's being disciplined. Uh, this is an important concept to me because if every single situation that requires collective church discipline has to be brought before the whole body of believers, then 
that's another set of problems that I think goes beyond the scope of what church discipline is intended to do. Church discipline is for the purpose of discipling that erring believer and bringing that person back into spiritual health and in the body. So it's my opinion that the best way to deal with church discipline issues is to find out who are the people that know this believer who has sinned in this area and is not repenting of this sin, and how can I include them in the process of restoration and the process of, of discipline uh, in a corrective situation, and, and limit it to that. And, and those people that are knowing the person needing the discipline, they will be involved in the process. So I'll give you an example. There was a situation many years ago where a young couple, not married, uh, was involved in a sexual relationship, and she became pregnant. I loved them both dearly, but they wanted to be upfront about the whole thing, and they wanted to be in good standing with the fellowship, and so they were brought into a corrective discipline situation. They were already in a position where they weren't trying to defend their behavior, and they were confessing it openly, and they were turning from it, but they just wanted to be in good good uh, standing and good stead with the fellowship. And so I really respected their position. So I sent out an invitation to those who, who knew this young couple. And we had a meeting, a specific meeting, after one of the church services. And we introduced the situation. We told them about it and then had them share a little bit. And then everyone was involved in the process of encouraging them, helping them remain accountable, encouraging them th- through their wedding, and, uh, and, and then you know staying in contact and in relationship with them in subsequent years. That was a form of church discipline because it was being brought out into the light, and it was very helpful to them. They wanted that kind of accountability, but I didn't feel like it was necessary to stand up in front of the whole church and try to say anything about this. I felt it was, it was more on that level that it was best addressed. I had another situation in another church where there was a marital sin situation, and there was a lack of desire to repent in that situation. So I called uh, together the, the men that knew the errant brother, the sinning brother, and explain to them the situation, explain to them b- the biblical parameters for how to exercise church discipline in this situation, explain the offense, and uh, encourage them to practice unity in the way they handled this. And they did. So they were united with the, the scriptures and with the Holy Spirit of God, and they, they acted toward this brother the way they should have. They loved him but they didn't have a meal with him. They loved him, but they didn't pretend to have an ongoing friendship with him. They wanted him to be exposed to the world without fellowship for a while so that he could come to his senses and, and repent. And it worked. I mean, it was a wonderful result. He didn't take long before he was broken, and the absence of connection with the body of Christ hurt him deeply. And he came around, and these brothers that were involved in the process got to witness and be part of his restoration into fellowship. So uh, it just keeps the circle small. I remember making mistakes in this area, like one time uh, sharing about a guy's uh, sexual sin in front of the whole fellowship during a Sunday morning service, early, very early in the ministry. 
And I just didn't feel right about it at the time. I didn't feel right about it afterwards. I just sensed that something was wrong. And I think I just went way beyond the scope of the, the situation. It should have been handled on a, on a different level in that particular case. But everyone who's involved in the process uh, is involved on the level of their knowledge of the individual. The exception would be the person who uh, is an elder in the church. The 1 Timothy 5.20 is clear that those elders who sin should be rebuked in the presence of all so that others may also fear. So that has to be pointed out uh, when somebody is unrepentant and is in sin, their sin has to be exposed and uh, others will learn to fear because this is a leader and that leader particularly has a greater level of accountability. So that's bullet point number four. And uh, after a short break, we'll come back with bullet points number five through nine. So we'll be taking a brief break at this time, and then we'll resume our discussion in just a moment. Be back soon. You've been listening to Strength for Today's Pastor. Poinman Ministries appreciates your participation and prayers. If you'd like to help financially support this podcast, you can go to our website at poinmanministries.com forward slash donate. Thank you. Okay, we're back. We're talking about church discipline what it's for, and how it works. So we've gone through four bullet points so far, and so we're going to dive into bullet point number five. And bullet point number five is, if the church discipline process requires separation from the body, the goal of the excommunication is restoration. So remember the passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul told the Corinthian church, I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunker or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside, but those who are outside God judges, therefore put away from yourselves the evil person." So the discipline involved was to not keep company with that brother or that sister because they're unrepentant and they're involved in the practicing of these sins. And they're not even to sit down and eat a meal with them in a social situation. That doesn't mean that you're not to to say hello to them when you see them on the streets. Doesn't mean that you have to scowl at them or say angry things to them, or caustic things to them. It just means you're cutting them off from fellowship in the body, and you're keeping them from thinking that everything is fine with them in the church and the other believers, even though they're involved in sin. What it's doing is it's, it's taking a person outside of the protective bubble of the Christian fellowship, and outside of the realm of the beauty of, of Christian love, that exists in churches. And so doing that, it's supposed to create an environment to where God can deal with the person directly. There's nobody trying to artificially prop up the sinful believer, and there is no situation where uh, there's an enabling of that behavior continuing to go on. But instead, we're just saying, okay, we're done. We've confronted you. We've brought this to your attention, you refuse to repent, so you're just not going to be able to be part of us, and and we're going to have to excommunicate you 
until or unless you repent and come back into fellowship with us. But don't expect to resume normal relations. So if that process, discipline process, requires this kind of separation from the body, we have to always remember that the goal of that excommunication is ultimately to be restoration. We want them to be restored to God. God wants them to be restored to himself first, first and foremost. Confession and repentance and um, making, you know, straightening things out relationally with others that have been offended, making amends, these kinds of things. And then, of course, to other believers. So first to God, restoration, then to believers, second. And, um, you know, Paul addresses this in Galatians 6.1 in a familiar passage. Brother, and if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. So the goal is restoration. We always have to keep that in our minds. The goal isn't punishment. The goal is restoration. Whether they want that restoration or not is up to them, but that's our goal in doing this discipline. It's a loving thing to do. Bullet point number six. Authority to exercise church discipline comes directly from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, admittedly, these are heavy matters. These are weighty matters to be involved in somebody's life to the point where we have to correct them corporately or congregationally from the leadership. It's a heavy thing. But the authority to do this and to exercise corrective church discipline comes directly from the Lord Jesus himself. It's embedded in his promise that whatever is decided on earth with respect to church discipline and what is consistent with his word and with his nature will also be heaven's decision. And in that Matthew passage in chapter 15, again in Matthew, Jesus said, after he said, if he doesn't hear you and, and it's told to the church and he still doesn't hear you, then let him to be to you as a heathen and a tax collector, Uh, Jesus then said, Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And if you agree on earth concerning anything that you ask, it will be done for my Father in heaven. So the context indicates that the binding and loosing that Jesus is talking about here is simply that if you make a decision with regard to church discipline, and you've gone through all the proper steps, and you're acting according to the heart of the Father, and according to the Word of God, and according to the nature of God, and there is no repentance, and there is no desire to make one's life right with God, then you excommunicate that person. You've made that decision on earth according to those criteria. Heaven agrees with you. Whatever you have bound on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Heaven backs you up. Heaven agrees with you. The binding and loosing that you have done on earth and might do on earth uh, will be agreed in heaven as well. So the authority comes directly from the Lord Jesus Christ, and this is so important. I don't have any authority apart from Scripture. I don't have any any authority apart from Jesus. I don't have any authority apart from the nature of Jesus. These things are things that come from him. So bullet point number six, church discipline process, the whole thing comes directly from the Lord Jesus, the authority to do it. Bullet point number seven, conditions must be clear for the disciplined person's return into full fellowship. So let's just say the sinning brother or sister who 
needs corrective church discipline comes to them to their senses and repents and comes back and wants to be restored to fellowship well it should be made clear to them at the time of discipline what the conditions of return into fellowship will be and i would just suggest that those conditions should include coming back to a designated elder or leader in the church and uh, that leader or elder in the church can have somebody else with him as a witness and they can hear the person's confession and see the evidence of repentance and then uh, following that meeting then the steps of being uh, back in into graces in the fellowship if the person was involved in leadership for example or if the person was involved in ministry what are the conditions for them to return back into leadership if there are any if they can be returned to leadership or what are the conditions involving them uh, returning back into some form of ministry these things should be clear and the lord will have to give us wisdom as to what that looks like in each situation, but it should be clear to the person who sins as they come back into, into full fellowship. That's bullet point number seven. Conditions must be clear for the disciplined person's return into full fellowship. Bullet point number eight. This is very important as well. The church's governing documents, which are the bylaws of the church, and the board minutes of the church, or the elders' minutes, if elders' meetings uh, are held and there are minutes that should be taken of any specific action that the elders are going to act upon, the church's governing documents and board minutes or elders' minutes should be consistent with the Bible's teaching on church discipline and internally consistent with board of directors' minutes or elders' meeting minutes. Basically, what this means is that if you have a set of bylaws it, which you will if you are an incorporated 501c3 organization, you should have in your bylaws a statement about church discipline, what it is and what are the conditions with the relevant passages of Scripture being cited there. Make sure that they have that statement in it. And make sure in conjunction with that that your uh, statement of faith in your bylaws has a clear statement on biblical sexuality and morality in that statement of faith, because those things will be challenged and more and more as our culture seems to be going in the other direction. So it has to be in there. And, and along with that line, there's another thing that I think is a point of, of action. Your bylaws are simply your legal operating documents. Uh, this is what legitimizes a, a church legally with their state uh, tax board and with the IRS who has granted the 501c3 designation. Uh, that's what the bylaws are. They are the legal document. And so the legal responsible parties to carry out the dictates of that document, the statements of that document, is the board of directors, which is led by the senior pastor, who is the chairman and the president of the board of directors. The congregation is not the legal party responsible for instituting or carrying out these things legally. Uh, biblically, yes, but not legally. And so for this reason, many sets of bylaws, and I agree with this, should have a statement that's similar to this that says this corporation 
has no members of any class and that in any place in the bylaws where members is included, it is to be understood that members mean the members of the board of directors. That way, there isn't a can of worms. We're not getting into a congregational rule kind of a document. We're not getting into congregational decisions about these things. These are things that are to be decided upon by designated and identified leaders. So make sure your bylaws have a clear statement because if you were to get sued as a result of an action of church discipline by someone, it needs to have been clear in those documents that this is the congregation's point of view. That's why it's important to post this part of the bylaws in different places in your building just so that people can understand. I have a sheet that I put together for churches I pastored that just talked about church discipline and what it is and how it applies. And it was one of these, you know, kind of a doctrinal statements, but it wasn't really just doctrinal. It was more of a practical life in the body kind of a statement. And it was posted in different places. And some churches, and this isn't a bad idea, those that are involved in leadership, those that are involved in positions of ministry that are key leadership positions, they should sign a statement that, say they, that says that they've read the bylaws and they understand the positions on church discipline and they agree with the statement of faith as in the bylaws of the church. That's not a bad idea at all. And uh, anybody who's uh, cooperative, of course, and, and is with you in your mission as a church will easily uh, be able to sign such a document. So anyway, the the governing documents. If you need help on this, I would say that you know you could reach out to us. We we help pastors and church leaders with their bylaws and with their governing documents to make sure they're in line with scripture, but also with uh, state and federal requirements as much as we can. And we'd be happy to help you in those areas. Okay, last bullet point. Bullet point number nine. Effective church discipline requires a deep team of leaders that are all in and who understand how church discipline should be practiced. In other words, you need to have a group of leaders and everyone who is a leader, especially elder, deacon level leadership, pastoral staff leadership, church staff leadership, anybody who's a leader needs to be all in concerning the process of church discipline. And that will probably mean they'll have to be trained and taught on this subject so that they will know what will be coming if a corrective act of church discipline needs to be carried out. They need to be in agreement with it because they need to be in agreement with the Bible and with Jesus and with what uh, the Spirit of God has said to us about how to handle these things. And if they're not equally trained and if they're not on board, then an active church discipline process can create other problems that you don't want to have, like church splits or false charges against leadership and a myriad of other kinds of issues. So before you actually start doing corrective church discipline, it's probably a good idea to disciple your leaders and to talk about it, make sure everybody understands what the Bible actually says on the subject of church discipline. And again, um, there are ways we can point you to resources to help you with that particular training information and process. So make your, make your bench deep. 
you know, like in a baseball team. Make your bench deep and make sure that everybody understands this and is on board. This is a very important part of the church. Uh, just imagine the early church when the first church discipline incident came came about. It wasn't something that human beings even had to be involved with, not even not really directly, but it was the case of Ananias and Sapphira in, in Acts chapter 5, where they had both lied and, and played the hypocrite and tried to pretend that they were more spiritual than they were when there had been no hypocrisy in the church. The leaven of hypocrisy had not invaded the early church up, up to that time. But now all of a sudden, they've got this potential insidious evil that could creep into the church. And so uh, the Lord initiated the discipline process in this way. He showed Peter that Ananias had lied and showed Peter that Sapphira had also lied and called them on it, but it was the Lord himself that exercised the discipline by having both of them uh, surrender their physical lives. They died. And so uh, just imagine, though, if they had not been on board. But the result of that was that everybody feared and signs and wonders were increased as a result because this potential leaven was brought out of the church, was, was taken out of the church. And this is what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, this leaven uh, will leaven the whole lump of dough. And you're a new lump, so live according to Christ who lives in you. Be, be that way. Don't be like the old leaven of sin and, and hypocrisy or whatever else that uh, form of leaven is, is all about or means. So that's bullet point number nine. And that really concludes the brief comments about what I've learned about church discipline. Uh, bullet points one through nine. And again, they're in the show notes. So just one final word. I, I would just encourage pastors, as I've had to encourage myself over the years, don't be sin sniffers, but, but take this seriously. If there's someone in the fellowship that is just not willing, we're not talking about a weakness. We're not talking about someone who's um, just stumbling from time to time. Uh, we're talking about somebody who's unwilling, unwilling to turn from sin, unwilling to acknowledge it, and is uh, going to be potentially affecting others in a negative way. That stubborn, rebellious heart and being unwilling to turn from sin, being unwilling to learn how to grow as a disciple, that's what requires church discipline. And I would just say, take it seriously. People that are like that, uh, are potential forms of cancer within the body. And I think a common form of, of a sin that uh, is often neglected and isn't understood even by pastors is what Paul told Titus in, in chapter 3 of Titus uh, about the divisive person. Uh, and, you, you know, in the King James, it's, it's translated heretic, and the Greek word sounds like heretic, but it really means a divisive person rebuke a divisive person, reject a divisive person, rather, after the first or second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and is sinning and is self-condemned. So reject the person who's divisive. So somebody's causing trouble in your church. Someone's causing division. Maybe it's a doctrinal issue. Maybe they believe in a different view of the rapture than you do. It's okay for them to believe in a different view of the rapture than you do or I do. They just can't make an issue out of it. But they start making an issue out of it, and they start talking about the pastor and about how he's not teaching correctly and so on and so forth. Well, 
if I'm a pastor and that's happening in my fellowship, then I'll bring that brother before me and I'll say, listen, I hear you're saying these things. It's okay for you to have a different opinion on these non-essential matters. They're not matters directly related to salvation or eternal life. You can have a different opinion. You're just not free to spread your opinion to anybody else and gather a group of people around you that agree with your opinion. So I'm telling you, you've got to stop. And if he stops, great. It's wonderful. The problem's over with. But if he doesn't stop, you can reject him. After one admonition, you can reject him and just say, I'm sorry, you can't fellowship here anymore. And if you go to another church, I'm going to call that pastor and I'm going to let them know that you caused a division through your insistence on having your own way and bringing other people into your opinion. Or you could be patient. You could wait and you could wait and admonish him a second time. But after you admonish him the second time and he still doesn't uh, repent and, and still doesn't stop being divisive, then you've got to reject him. Now, this is an often misunderstood concept. We, we think that heresy is just doctrinal uh, error or, or spreading doctrinal error. No, it's, uh, heresy is, is creating division, drawing people around me and to my opinion. And this is a cancer in our churches, and this is causing a lot of church splits. It has to be nipped in the bud. And so here's an example. Take church discipline seriously. Learn the conditions of church discipline and when corrective church discipline might be necessary, not for the purpose of being a sin sniffer, but for the purpose of being ready to recognize when these things could potentially cause problems within a fellowship and thus hurt the whole body, and we don't want that to happen. So that concludes really our podcast for today. If you'd like an editable document on church discipline that I talked about earlier that you could uh, basically customize according to your own church, these are, this is the position of Calvary Chapel XXX, that's fine. It's editable, it's generic. Uh, just email us and we'll send that out to you. And if you'd like help or counsel with regard to your bylaws or the process of church discipline, just contact us through our website or by email at strongerpastors at gmail.com. And please also remember that we have a team of pastors who are available to strengthen you, that your churches will be strengthened, and our men are wonderful examples of Christ's love for the body of Christ. So thanks for joining us, and God bless you until next week, in Jesus' name. Strength for Today's Pastor is sponsored by Pointman Ministries. You can find us at pointmanministries.com. That's spelled P-O-I-M-E-N ministries.com. If something in today's program prompts a question or comment, or if you have a topic idea for a future episode, just shoot us an email at strongerpastors at gmail.com. That's strongerpastors at gmail.com. May the Lord bless you as you serve Him, His pastors, and His church.